And we're going to be in 1 John and jump around a little in 2 Thessalonians and then kind of be in Revelation. And so just let you know in advance, okay? 1 John chapter 2 is actually what we're studying in a roundabout way. <laughs> All right, let me pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. It's a great privilege to have communication direct from you. You know all things. You know the future. You've ordained all that comes to pass, and you've revealed key elements of that to us. So we pray that we would order our life in such a way to honor what you have chosen to reveal to us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we were trying to figure out why the Apostle John in 1 John 2.18 decided to bring up the Antichrist in this letter he wrote to some of the churches in Asia Minor that were disturbed by a recent exodus of some of the members of the church. They abandoned the faith for a quasi-Christian cult called Gnosticism. And John reminds them that, that an evil empire builder that he calls the Antichrist is coming. And he says there are Antichrists, plural, Antichrists, running around now. That's what he says. So 2.18 he says, children, it is the last hour and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So I was thinking last week that we had better get a good grasp of this Antichrist person in order to understand what John means when he talks about Antichrists that are among us now, that are kind of running around right now. So last week we took a quick but uh, rather in-depth dive into the Antichrist as he appears in Old Testament prophecy, especially the book of Daniel. He isn't called Antichrist there. In fact, that's a word that John coined, or um, as far as we know, that's his word. Um, that's the name for the person that Daniel is describing in the Old Testament. In great detail, actually. So we won't review all of that this morning. It's all on our YouTube page. <laughs> if you missed last week, go there and sit there and have to watch me on television. What a horrible thought. But let's briefly look at what the New Testament, the New Testament says about that today. That's what I want to do. And then see how John applies it to, to his time. So the Apostle Paul, he used the name, he didn't use the name Antichrist. He called the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. And he describes him in terms that are straight out of the book of Daniel. So jump to 2 Thessalonians or go back a little bit to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What Paul says is really important because it reaffirms everything that Daniel wrote in the 6th century BC. So he's like 600 years later and he also sees it the same way that John does for the present time. So he's looking at Daniel, filling in on Daniel and then he's also relating it to his time as well which is the same time as John's time basically. So in chapter 2 verse 1 it says, Now we request of you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So somebody's been writing letters pretending to be Paul or whatever or sending a message or saying that they heard this from Paul or something like that. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the day of the Lord is that final period of this world's history. 
And it includes um, the Lord Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom and all the things that kind of lead up right before that. And that's the day of the Lord when all those things happen. And some unnamed persons were saying that that day had already happened. And there was definitely a heresy we can discern from the New Testament going around that we are already resurrected. We're all, it's just kind of a weird doctrine that showed up in the, you know, there's always a cult, right? They always have their own ideas. So this is one of those kind of ideas. So um, he's saying, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled that, you, that somebody says the day of the Lord has come. It hasn't come. How do we know it hasn't come? Well, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. So that's another name for the Antichrist. The son of destruction. Son of in biblical language is always means... It, it you're a representative of this quality, right? So son of destruction means he's a destroyer. That's what that would mean. So the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's, that's not good. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So right there in verse 5, we find out that these end times details were being taught in the first century by Paul and also by John in, in his letters. And when, he, when they were doing their teaching in these churches, this was all familiar stuff to them. So he's saying, don't you remember about that, what we said about that? So Paul taught the church in Greece and in Macedonia and John taught in the churches in Asia Minor and they were all teaching the same thing. So um, then verse 6 he goes on. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's usually regarded as the Holy Spirit who's kind of keeping everything tapped down until the day when this man of lawlessness will be revealed. So God's in, God is sovereign over all things. But he's not here yet. That's his thing. His time, in, the, in his time he will be revealed, he says. So it's not, it's not his time. But notice in verse 7 he says, um, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's a man of lawlessness. He's coming. And there's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. That's happening right now, he says. So there's also this principle of lawlessness at work as well as a person. So that's just like what John is saying. There's an antichrist and then coming future. And now there's antichrist. It's exactly the same idea. So one of the most obvious realities of the world is that human beings are a corrupt mess. Everybody ever notice that about the world? <laughs> it doesn't matter what moral standards uh, uh, various cultures might have, people blow it all the time. There's only two things to remember about the wickedness of the world. One is that human beings sin all on their own. They don't need any help. We are a fallen people. As the Narnia books call us, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? We all are descended from them. We have the same brokenness as they do, the same sinful tendencies that they had. At the same time, this is the second thing, there's a malevolent force in the world, uh, a fallen angel, the, the serpent in the garden. He's actually described in the book of Revelation as a dragon. So he's a big serpent or a very nasty serpent. And that's Satan himself, personally. 
He's the adversary. That's what his name even means. So there's a grander, bigger rebellion among the spiritual beings that God made, of which we are just a tiny little part of that rebellion focused on this one planet. But there's a much bigger thing going on, a much bigger reality going on. And Satan is the father of rebellion in heaven and he's the father of rebellion on earth. Jesus had a name for Satan. Jesus called him the father of lies. He's the father of lies. He hates God and he's actively trying to thwart whatever God is doing. Now we know from the book of Job he's extremely limited in what he can do. He can only get away with God, what God allows him to get away with. But, if, but as much room as God gives him, he takes advantage of it as much as he can to do as much destruction as he can. He tempted Adam and Eve and he directly tempted Jesus right when he was starting his ministry and he kept on tempting Jesus and he keeps on tempting God's people. That's, that's what he does. We talked last week about also the, the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel, the 77's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And there's five promises that were made for the future of Jerusalem and the Jewish people in that 77's prophecy. Remember that? The, prophes the, prophes the promises there don't mention Satan, but their fulfillment means his overthrow. So this is Daniel 9.24. Let me just read it for you. So here's the five promises. Messiah will come to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That would be the holy city and the, the temple. So all of these things spell the end of the rampaging of Satan in the world. He's going to be bound. So Jesus already made atonement for iniquity when he first came. He started a marvelous process of redemption that's going on right now whereby people that were enslaved to Satan can be set free by him and in Christ God transfers, this is Paul's language in the book of Colossians, God transfers those who are Christ out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you're here today hopefully you've had that transition happen and you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're not sure about that come and see me. Make an appointment please. Once that transference is made and you're in the kingdom of God's beloved son, you are secure forever in him by God's grace and power. He saves wretched sinners just like us. And guess who hates that? Satan hates that. He hates it that God saves wicked people because he's not going to be saved. So in the future, the prophecy says, Christ will come to bring to this world everlasting righteousness. There's no room for, for Satan in a world of everlasting righteousness. He will be bound, we are told in the Bible. So he fights God now. He can't win. I think he knows he can't win, but he fights from sheer hatred. You know, I have literally, over many years of ministry, I have literally watched Satan take captive souls. I've actually seen it happen. I don't mean him personally standing there. I just mean I've seen how he can take over a soul, capture a soul. That's what he's all about doing. He uses people, he uses people's weaknesses and amazingly he uses people's strength. He'll use anything. He's got a temptation for everyone. He knows how to do it. He uses our desires. He uses our fears. He uses our pride. He uses our mission. He uses our work. He uses our talent. He uses our education. He uses power that we might have over other people in positions of authority. He uses that. 
He uses victimization. He uses victimhood as a status that people relate to so that he can, he can tell, he tells them lies. He tells everybody lies to get them to do his bidding. And, and whatever circumstance you're in in life or whatever kind of personality you have, he has a lie for you. He'll tell you lies. So you're going to believe his lies? You're going to believe what the Word of God says. That's the choice every human being has to make. He tells people what they want to hear and he tells people what they don't want to hear. All depending on the person. So we're all different. And he's very well practiced in dealing with human beings. And he knows your particular bent towards sin. And he's going to use that against you. So you've got to be aware of his abilities to do that. So Satan started his temptation of human beings by the very first thing he did was he denied the word of God, right? In the garden. Has God said, has he, did he really say that? That you can't touch this beautiful tree or eat this beautiful tree? Did he say that? And Satan still does that. So the power of the word to humble us and point us to the Savior is taken away. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take that away. That's the mystery of lawlessness that's working right now. Is the Antichrist here? Is the man of lawlessness here? I don't think so. He might be running around in the world somewhere, but he hasn't shown up. But this mystery of lawlessness, this promotion of sin and rebellion against God, that's everywhere, all the time. Many people are involved in that, telling the lies that Satan wanted them to tell. So that's what he does right now. And as he fights the church and as he fights Christian individuals, he's working toward global domination. I mean, that's Satan's ultimate goal. Not just spiritually, I mean directly. That's where the man of lawlessness comes in. That's where the Antichrist comes in. Actually using a man to subdue the world. Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan? What did Satan offer him? The kingdoms of the world. He, he seemed to think he had the authority to give those to Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, you don't have authority to do that. He just, he just said, that's not what I'm here for, you know. He didn't have any interest in getting that from Satan. He'll promise us things to get us to do his bidding. So the man of lawlessness is coming. The mystery of lawlessness, this, the lies and the rebellion that these lies encourage are going to focus in a person, a man. And that's why he's called the man of lawlessness. And Satan will use a man to literally subdue the world. I mean, in terms of armies and government and power and technology, he's going to subdue the world. Just like God became a man to save the world, Satan is going to energize a man to subdue the world for him. So we saw last week what Daniel says about that man. Um, now I want to go to Revelation chapter 13. Let's do that real quick. There is, at the end, just, just before Christ comes, a, a kind of a wicked triumvirate. That's the, uh, a, a trio of wicked rulers. Uh, an anti-trinity, some people call it. And we find it in Revelation chapter 13. And the first member of this wicked trinity is in verse 1. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Who's the dragon? Good, thank you. Somebody was listening. Thank you. Yeah, the dragon is Satan. Verse 2, I saw a beast. That's the second person. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And the beast is using Daniel's language for the Antichrist. That's what he's doing. He's taking this imagery right out of Daniel. And you should also remember Daniel's language from chapter 7, verse 7. Because he spoke of a ten-horned 
beast, a beast with ten horns, right? In Revelation chapter 13 verse 2, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads and on his horns were ten diadems or crowns and on his heads were blasphemous names. So the horns are nations or kings of nations. Verse 2, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Okay, I want to show you something for a minute here, just a second. Uh, remember last week we were talking about the United Nations and how they, they, they took verses out of Isaiah chapter 2 and they put them on the UN headquarters but took God out of it? Like they're going to make peace in the world without God. That's sort of the, the idea there. Remember that? And I, I just happened on this article that last week when I was kind of looking through this stuff about a monument they put up in front of the UN headquarters last year, 2021. And it was a statue donated by Mexico to the UN and it's out in front of the headquarters there and it's called the Guardian for International Peace and Security. This is a statue of the Guardian for International Peace and Security. This is what he looks like. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And I'm not saying it means anything. It's just a little bit strange. <laughs> he kind of looks like a beast that has you know, the, the leopard actually beast in Daniel's prophecy had wings and he kind of looks like he's got feet like a bear and he's got a mouth like the mouth of a lion. It kind of looks like that, doesn't he? So, now, I'm not saying that means anything. It's just kind of weird. <laughs> you know, if we were walking down the street and we were going to go visit the UN and I saw that statue out front and you said, what do you think that is? I probably wouldn't say, that looks like international peace and safety. <laughs> I'd probably say, that looks like a beast out of Daniel. That's what I would say. Anyway, just kind of, anyway, you can take that down. But it was just kind of for fun. I thought you'd enjoy that. Got your attention. Okay, verse 2. The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon is Satan. And Satan is giving this beast power, a throne, and great authority. And it's interesting because the qualities describing this beast take the, the, three, the three of the first beasts out of Daniel's prophecy and kind of put them all together. So he's, it's kind of the ultimate empire having the strengths of all the different empires and their unique abilities all kind of wrapped into one sort of thing. So this is the greatest empire that will ever be in the world before Christ comes. So then verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Some people think that's a nation that basically is destroyed and then suddenly pops back up and takes over everything. Uh, more people I think believe that it's a, it, it is the Antichrist himself. He is mortally wounded or killed and has kind of a resurrection, sort of, again, sort of an imitation of Christ in some way, or at least that's what they're going to tell the world. Something like that's going on. It's possible that some kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a significant enough event that people worship him. Verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So there's, there's people literally worshiping Satan because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So he's so strong, we can't fight him, nobody's going to be able to fight him, so we're all going to kowtow, we're all going to give ourselves. And it's interesting talking about the, 
the guardian of security and peace and all that because the Bible says right when everybody says peace and safety that's when the end's going to come when everybody thinks they've achieved peace and safety so and he'll be he's not going to come along and say I'm going to dominate everyone he's going to say I'm going to bring peace and security to the world that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do and he'll probably seem like he does it successfully I think I mentioned before that that was exa exactly how Hitler got elected I'm going to bring peace to the world I'm going to bring a stability you know and stand up for Germany so the world of sinful men is always looking for substitutes for God the living God everybody does that that's a, that's in human nature it's bound into our fallen condition so they're going to find their hero, their savior, the, the powerful one who's got all the answers or seemingly does. And so the scope and the reach of the empire of the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, is going to be global. Verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months? That sounds like three and a half years. We talked about that last time too, that three and a half year thing. Yeah, that's right out of Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 9? Anyway, verse 6. He opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That would be the temple in Jerusalem. Well, he says that is those who dwell in heaven, so the heavenly tabernacle. It was also given to him to make war with the saints. That would be an earthly Jerusalem. And to overcome them, an authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Authority over who? Every people and tribe and tongue and nation. That's everybody. That's a, that's a global empire. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in, from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. And then he says that little warning in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. See, people read this stuff and their eyes glaze over and he's saying, no, you need to know that this is actually going to happen. This, you need, if you have an ear to hear, you need to hear about this. Then in verse 11, you have the third member of the anti-trinity. So we've talked about the dragon, we've talked about the beast coming up out of the ocean. Now there's another beast that comes up out of the earth. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So he's a works with him. He makes the earth and all who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. That make, that's what makes you think it's a person that has this mortal wound and, or death and then comes back some kind of resurrection. So the beast is like the spokesman or the prophet of the Antichrist and he has the power of a great prophet uh, except he's an anti-prophet just like the beast is an antichrist. He's going to deceive the whole world and everybody's going to submit to him. So he is brought forth by the dragon, Satan, who is the father of lies and the world is going to buy into these lies. Well, we're going to stop there as far as Revelation goes. So the point is that Antichrist will come, he will deceive the whole world, and the world will submit to him. And he was brought forth and inspired by Satan. So history is moving toward this end. That's where things are going.
doesn't seem that surprising now that things are going that way, but in some ages people have said, no, that could never happen. We can't stop that from happening. God has ordained that this is going to happen. That's why it's in the Bible. We can't stop that from happening any more than the people in the first century could have stopped Jesus going to the cross. It was going to happen. It had to happen. It had to happen for our salvation. And this has to happen for the salvation of the world. Now let's talk about 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, and the way John uses antichrist and antichrists. Okay, so verse 18, 1 John 2, it's the last hour. He says, children, it is the last hour, just as you heard that antichrist is coming. Even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. So now he's talking about the people that had left the church, right? For if they had been of us, then they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all, they all are not of us. So that's talking about those folks that left the church, that left the Savior, Jesus. They didn't leave the church like they went to, down the street to the Baptist church over there. It's not that kind of leaving. They left Christianity. They walked away from Christ for a cult. Now they may have used Jesus' name because that cult did use Jesus. But it, they denied every doctrine of the faith. Everyone, all the major doctrines. So um, it was a cult, it wasn't real, and people had left and gone to that. So when John wrote, Antichrist, the beast, the man energized by Satan, is still future, right? He's still to come, he says. But he says, by way of explanation for this happening, many Antichrists have appeared. They're already present. So we want to understand what those antichrists are, what those antichrists might be in our day. The antichrist serves Satan, the dragon. That's the antichrist's job in our world when he comes. And if Satan is the father of lies, as Jesus called him, then the little present day antichrists are those who serve Satan by promoting his lies. They just do it in a little way, a small way, a local way, if you will. And maybe they do it unknowingly in terms of being serving Satan. Like they don't say, oh, I'm a servant of Satan. Let me tell you these, his lies. He just has to convince people that his lies are true and they'll go do it for him. They don't have to necessarily be worshiping him in their minds. Many people are deceived themselves. The Gnostics who made God the creator of the world, the evil one, they actually taught that he was the problem he created this evil world and trapped our spirits in our bodies and that's all his fault. That's what they taught. And they denied that Christ even died on the cross or that he had his death on the cross, which, well, they said it didn't happen, but they said the whole idea of that is useless. That's not what it's about. They, they were as satanically inspired as the beast. But to them, they just were taking Greek philosophy and grabbing Jesus and mixing it up and it's not like they were worshiping Satan in the dark, you know. But their, their system kept people away from God. It twisted the gospel. It twisted who Jesus is. It made it impossible for people to be saved that were part of their cult. That's all that Satan wants. He doesn't care if you're personally worshiping him or not. He's anti-God. That's his main thing. He doesn't want people to know God. So the little an antichrist, they're not uniform in their belief. They don't have a set of doctrines. They, they could believe all kinds of different things. So just as Paul talked about the mystery of lawlessness being present in the world before the man of lawlessness, these antichrists are in the world now before 
even long before the man antichrist will appear on the world stage. Little antichrists can be very religious. They could be total atheists or they could be somewhere in between. It's not that. They might deny Christ, openly deny him, mock him, say there's nothing to Christianity. You hear a lot of that these days, but, you've, but that's been going on for hundreds of years, so that's not surprising. Or they might just use his, him and talk about Jesus a lot and just twist him out of recognition. And if they can get you to believe in a different Jesus, Satan is just as happy. But they do serve the same master and their master is the dragon in the garden. So when I was putting all this together and thinking about these things, what came to my mind was um, an American Episcopal bishop, you probably haven't heard of him, but his name is John Shelby Spong, Bishop Spong. He died last year, I think he was 90 or 91 years old, but as I grew up during my Christian years, I'm <laughs> almost at the end, but as, as I, you know, he was a big name, a big name, representing the Episcopal Church. And he denied every doctrine of the Christian faith, every single one. He wrote books against the virgin birth, against the substitutionary atonement of Christ, against the deity of Christ. He didn't believe any of those doctrines. And he was a bishop. And a pretty eloquent speaker. He's not a great speaker, but he's okay. You can go on YouTube and watch his speeches. You, but he was a leading little antichrist. One of the little ones. He was a one embodiment of the mystery of lawlessness that's going out through the world to take people away from Christ within the church. Actually teach against Christ as a bishop in the Episcopal Church. So you might call him like an anti-doctrine person because in his thinking there's no theological certainties at all. None. Except sexual perversions. He was really into that. That was okay. But he loved to twist scripture. Let me give you an example. He said, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. So he's talking about the Second Commandment. You guys remember the Second Commandment? Make no images. That's the verse that Mike was reading earlier. So we're told, he's, this is his, what he said. We were told in the Second Commandment we could make no images of this God. Now, here's a, here's a bishop in the Episcopal Church quoting the Bible about God and saying this God. Not our God. This God, that the God of the Bible is some strange God. That's really what he's saying. We were told in the second commandment, second commandment we could make no images of this God. And I don't think that means just building idols. I think that means also trying to believe you've captured God in your words, in the creeds, in the scriptures. Thank you. <laughs> So the commandment in the scriptures against any graven images, he reinterprets to mean, and no human I know of has ever come up with this idea before. He interprets the second commandment to mean it's foolish to think that you can find truth about God in words or in church creeds or in the Bible, in the scriptures. You won't find God in scripture. That's what he believed. Well, where exactly do we find the second commandment? In the scripture. So he's actually preaching from a scripture about how you're not to trust the scripture. You see how, you see how that trick is played? This is how it can be done in churches. This is how antichrists, this is how the mystery of lawlessness infects churches. And there are many, many churches in our day 
infected in just this way. He's all for using scripture if he can twist it into an unrecognizable idea. So Bishop Spong just attacked scripture every chance he got. Now the truth is that in the books that contain the second commandment in the Old Testament, Exodus, where, you know, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy, right? And the entire Old Testament, in those books and in the entire Old Testament, it always and everywhere condemns idol making, right? The entire Bible is against idol making. And at the same time, always and everywhere, those same books exhort every person to hear, learn, and fully obey every word of scripture. So, so to take that second commandment and just stick an idea on it that's totally foreign to it, that's counter to everything those books say, that's just, that's literally a corruption. It's a twisted, perverted lie. I mean, it's such an obvious lie. But you know what? If you're waiting for a way to get out from under the weight of the Bible, oh, yeah, I see, yeah. People buy into the lie. So that's what he did. Very dishonest. Very dishonest. Manipulative to an extreme to say that God cannot be captured by the scriptures. That's exactly where God is captured. And we don't mean captured like put in a prison. We mean like if I take a great picture of you and you look just like the best, say you really captured so and so, right? That's what people say. Or if some essayist or great writer describes you or a character or something like that, they say they really captured that person. That's what that means when he's using that word. Capturing someone in words that tells who they are. Scripture is God's revelation of himself. It captures who he is because he inspired it. So he wants us to know that the scripture is exactly who he is and what he wants from us. In fact, in the book of Exodus where the Ten Commandments are given, Moses pleads with God. You remember that? Moses pleads with God. Show me your glory, he says. I just want to see your glory. And God says, well, you can't see all my glory. You'd like burn to a crisp. He doesn't say it exactly like that. But he says, I'll show you my glory in part. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember what actually happened? This is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. Now, what's going to happen is words. Words are going to capture God's glory. Let me read it for you. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps his loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgression and sin yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations then it says Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship Bishop Spong, I can assure you, never in his life bowed low to the earth and worshipped God for who he is, for how he's revealed himself. He plays with scripture to undermine the confidence of Christians in the scripture. That's antichrist. That is literally the spirit of antichrist. That's being a little antichrist. Here's how Bishop Spong taught what the cross of Jesus really means. Okay, you're ready for what the cross really means? 
The cross reveals that we are called to a deeper, fuller experience of what it means to be alive and open to new dimensions of life which our religious boundaries, creeds, atonement theologies have kept us from experiencing. Oh, those nasty doctrines and truth claims that keep us from whatever. Now, what are the atonement theories? Well, it would be 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, for example. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's an atonement theory. That's clear. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But that's not what Jesus' death is about, says the bishop. Not salvation from sin. Sin is that, oh, you know, that whole oppressive thing, that religious thing they put on you, you know, sin. The cross is really about a deeper, fuller experience of what it means to be alive and open to new dimensions in life. That is a completely meaningless phrase. <laughs> what is that? I can't tell you how popular this guy was. He was very big because he taught a religion of self-exploration that de made no moral demands on you whatsoever. Now obviously people who love the Jesus of the Bible are going to hear Bishop Spong and recoil and say that is an agent of evil. Anybody that knows the living God is going to say that. A well-planted antichrist within a large American denomination with great influence. And he knew that Christians saw him that way. And the reason I'm quoting him is because of this next quote from him. Because he actually refers to himself as the Antichrist. That, that people think he's the Antichrist. This is what he said. Plenty of people out there think of me as the Antichrist. Or the devil incarnate. Because I do not affirm the literal patterns of the Bible. But the fact is that I can no more abandon the literal patterns than I could fly to the moon. I just go beyond them. <laughs> More lies. He doesn't affirm any of the little literal patterns of the Bible, whatever that phrase means. So lots of wordplay that for him tells us to go beyond Scripture or away from Scripture or deny Scripture. So that Antichrist bishop in 2021 met Jesus personally. He died. He died. And he stood before Jesus with his full and deeper life and no atonement for his sin because he denied that. He rejected the salvation Jesus offered through his suffering for his sins and he taught others that they didn't need to worry about their sins. And they didn't need Christ either. The pure evil. And you know what? His mouth was shut. He didn't give God a theological lecture. He didn't talk to him. He didn't talk back. The Bible says when you stand before him your mouth will be shut. He didn't have anything to say. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 people like that he's going to say I never knew you. Depart from me. Your clerical collar means nothing here. He literally used his position in the church to lead people astray. That's the Antichrist in the church. And that's what John is talking about in the letter. That's why I bring all that up. The fundamental purpose of these little Antichrists in the world is the same as the purpose of the beast who is coming and is going to impose godlessness on the world. It's to destroy human souls. That's the purpose of Antichrist today. So Antichrist can be found in churches, right? 
They can be found in academia, they can be found in the arts, they can be found in journalism, they can be found in really silly places like TikTok. <laughs> Antichrist exists to reach people with lies and to get them to believe lies about God. Even to shape whole cultures against Christ. That's what their purpose is. Well, people say, you're just fear-mongering, Pastor. You're just trying to create a lot of fear. You know, I'm really not. Because you know what? It, I'm not afraid of this. <laughs> if you spend any time in the Bible, you know it's going to be this way. It's not like something to be afraid of. I don't fear it at all. It saddens me that antichrists are successful in the world, that they're teaching people lies and people believe their lies. They don't scare me. They serve their master, I serve my master. That's kind of how it goes. And my master's going to win. So I'm not scared. But that's why you should be on my master's side. Not because he's mine, but because he's going to bring everlasting righteousness to the world. And he's going to destroy the wicked. And he's going to take his rightful place on the earth. Because it's his. And he's going to reclaim it for God. So I think you can grasp now what John means when he says Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. That's what he's talking about. So there remains kind of one question there in verse 19 of chapter, John, 1 John chapter 2. And that's a big issue today. You know, there's a big thing right now, a current cultural phenomenon that's been going on for several years. It's called deconverting. So there's several famous people and a lot of other people, especially online, of course, on TikTok and all those kind of things. So deconversion is a kind of a modern cool word for people that were Christians or said they were Christians or lived a Christian life or maybe raised in the church and deconverted. They left Christianity. Now some, some pretty big names actually were, have deconverted. Even a guy I knew and, and liked very much and uh, talked to him several times, a very well-known pastor, and he deconverted. Now he's just, well, he's just kind of weird now, but... Um, it's really big talk in church circles and in cultural analysts, even non-Christians are all talking about this phenomenon of deconversion. Those who deconvert are people that would have identified as Christians. So some are just culturally Christian. They weren't really, but some people say, like my, my, my acquaintance there, he was, of course I believed in Jesus. I was totally for it. I preached the gospel. I did all these things. I believed. And now I, now I don't believe anymore. I just don't. Well, how does that happen? How does a person walk away from Christ? Well, John says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they all, all are not of us. So what is exactly does that mean? What's he talking about in verse 19? Who is in view in that particular verse? And this text has been abused rather horribly sometimes in an illegitimate way. So we want to definitely get it right. And a good time to do that might be next Sunday. So, so why don't we all come back and talk about verse 19. Okay, let's pray. Our great Lord, our coming King. Here we are, ambassadors for Jesus. Ambassadors for you, Lord. Ambassadors for truth in a world that's literally built on the lies of Satan. We know that your kingdom will come in calamitous times. You, you called them birth pangs, Lord. Whatever comes, whenever it comes, we will be faithful to the gospel. We'll be faithful to you, our King, most of all. And we ask you for wisdom and courage as we move through this world. May we live for you and your kingdom and not for ourselves. We ask in your holy name. Amen.